I think music is probably a better metaphor, at least for consciousness, than is computation. Dr. Stuart Hameroff is a professor of anesthesiology and psychology at the University of Arizona. He's best known for his work on quantum consciousness, a theory he's co-created with Sir Roger Penrose. Does neuroscience need a revolution to understand consciousness? And I believe it does. It's also a theory that's been highly disputed by the scientific community. Does our brain really operate like a supercomputer? Or is it actually more like a quantum orchestra? I think you need microtubules. And uh, I think you need these uh, coherent vibrations. Tune in for more about the true nature of consciousness. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Welcome, everybody, to what promises to be a wild tour through consciousness, imagination, and the human brain, a sample of which I brought here for today's renowned guest, my friend, second time appearance on the Into the Impossible podcast. It's Professor Dr. Stuart Hameroff the University of Arizona, where he is a professor of anesthesiology and psychology and the director of the Center for Consciousness Studies, where there were plans for the last year, because I get these emails every year, and I spoke many years ago at this conference when it was last in San Diego, and they just had a phenomenal conference held up in Encinitas, I guess, um, at the, for the Center for Consciousness, featuring our good old friend, Sir Roger Penrose, who's coming up on 93, I think, next week. I think he just turned. Oh, no, he just turned 93. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Stuart, how are you? Very well, Brian. It's good to see you again. It's great Looking to good. see you. Yeah, I'm glad you came. Get to escape the heat and come into the kitchen here in San Diego. I'm what you call a zoni in this part of the country. That's right? what we do call you. We <laughs> see, but you usually leave uh, around uh, Labor Day, so that's nice. So we get our we get our beaches back. I get um, the hint. <laughs> <laughs> not you personally. We love having you here. So you've been on before. You came on last time with Sir Roger, uh, but this time I want to get an in-depth look into your research, what drives you, passions, and also to answer some questions that I've had about consciousness for a very long time. Uh, but I thought first we do something that we always do on this podcast. We we do a feature that we call judging books by their covers. You don't have a, a book today that we're discussing, but I thought we'd look at the the cover of the symposium, the artwork for the symposium. <laughs> and the last time I was here, uh, I spoke at it in 2017. I can't believe it. There was a brain riding a surfboard somehow in La Jolla. So anyway, can you explain the origin story and judge the symposium by its cover? Well, the recent symposium was, uh, does neuroscience need a revolution to understand consciousness? And I believe it does. And this particular conference, which is kind of a satellite conference of our usual consciousness conferences, uh, was a result of the last two ASSC conference conferences, which ASSC is kind of the other uh, large uh, conference, annual conference on consciousness. They tend to be more conservative. They are more academic. There's but they don't really deal with consciousness so much as cognition, metacognition, language, what Dave Chalmers called the easy problems. And the last two ASSC conferences have featured theories of consciousness, but didn't include ours, even though uh, they were centered on the uh, Templeton Foundation Adversarial Collaboration Program, which poured a lot of money into consciousness research in the last few years. And originally, there were five theories, integrated information theory, global neuronal workspace, predictive coding, and higher order theory and ours orchestrated objective reduction. 
And the other four are really what I call kind of uh, wiring diagrams of information flow in the brain without really dealing with any biology. They're kind of, um, you know, information goes this way, it goes that way, and then it all converges, and that's where consciousness is. And so their, their collaborations were based on where is consciousness? Is it in the front of the brain? Is it in the back of the brain? And there was one particular one between IIT and Global Neuronal Workspace whether it's in the front of the brain and the back of the brain. And uh, $5 million later, they had a big showdown at the ASAC conference and they couldn't decide. <laughs> it was conflicting con and, uh, and so it was a big, big tie. And also uh, Chalmers and Christoph Kolk uh, settled a bet from 25 years ago on whether there, we'd have a neural correlate of consciousness in 25 years. Dave had said no, because he believes in the hard problem that consciousness is essentially unsolvable. And Christoph said, yes, we'll have a neural correlate in 25. Well, 25 years later, Christoph had to admit we, we don't, no. even though he's a big advocate of uh, IIT. He had to admit that, that it wasn't uh, convincing. Anyway, they didn't consider our theory. And as I told Christoph and Dave, you know, we've already shown that quantum effects in microtubules are inhibited by anesthesia. And therefore, the neural correlate of consciousness should be in microtubules at a deeper level within the brain. But they only consider neurons as simple on-off switches. They only consider the Hodgkin-Huxley 1950s era membrane-only ion propagation uh, signaling along the membrane in a Turing that is a computable uh, algorithmic neuron. And the brain's not like that. If you put electrodes inside cortical uh, pyramidal cells, they're non-algorithmic. They have some, some other feature other than membrane adjusting the threshold from beat to beat. A great place for consciousness to come in and, uh, and adjust things and modify what is otherwise automatic uh, behavior. So um, because uh, we weren't part of the adversarial, we tried to have an adversarial collaboration with IIT. And we had a meeting in early 2020, just before COVID in Tucson, with Giulio Tononi and Christoph Koch and Roger and Honorbon and, and other colleagues of, of mine, of ours on the ORCOR on the microtubule side. The idea in the adversarial collaboration was to have one, one experiment that if it went one way would prove one theory, if it went the other would prove the other. It'd be a decisive experiment. Yes. And we couldn't, and we couldn't uh, come, come up with anything because number one, I don't think IIT is falsifiable. And number two, we're at a deeper level, and our theory would be talking about quantum effects in microtubules inside neurons, faster, deeper quantum, and would be consistent with any of the other theories, which are more like wiring diagrams or even phrenology maps on the, on the surface of the, of the skull. So uh, that kind of fell through, but uh, Templeton generously gave us $200,000 to do two experiments, both of which turned out very favorable to us, one of which is published and the other one uh, will be coming out soon. When I had on David Chalmers, he uh, graciously came on last year for his, his new book and he's from Australia. And I asked him that the following question, which I want to ask you. If I were to have on ACDC, the most popular band besides maybe Olivia Newton-John, rest in peace, from the land down under of Australia. And I were not to ask them to play their song, you know, Back in Black, I would be worth nothing as a podcaster. So I want to ask you uh, your greatest hit. I asked him for his greatest hit, Define the Hard Problem of Consciousness. And, and he did, and that was wonderful. I want you, in your words, to describe what is ORC OR. Okay, as I said, most theories look at the brain as a complex computer of simple neurons. So if you have complex enough interactions and you're, they're wired up in the proper circuitry, then consciousness emerges at a critical level of complex interactions. But the neurons themselves are simple on-off switches, no different than what you would find in a computer, functionally. 
And uh, this has been the idea, and this this grew out of um, Hodgkin Huxley, which lends itself very well to uh, wow. uh, algorithmic mm-hmm. neurons, mm-hmm. biological, and then computation. And you know, the brain uh, consciousness and the brain has always been likened to the current information processing technology, going back to the, the Greeks with a, a seal ring and wax for memory, and then telegraph switching circuits, a hologram, smoke signal, well, maybe not smoke signals, <laughs> but, uh, and then uh, the computer, of course, in the last, uh, 50 years it's been the computer and AI has come along and run with that idea and say when we get complex enough or we get enough this or that we'll have consciousness mm-hmm. and I think that's completely wrong because yeah. I follow Roger's idea that consciousness is non-computational and there's something other than computation something other than a Turing machine going on right so the, the ORC OR component of it relates to quantum mechanics and non-computability how how so if you look at one neuron as I said if you put an electrode into a uh, pyramidal cell which I, I think is the most likely place uh, on this in the cortex the layer 5 pyramidal cells for reasons I could go into but uh, and you measure the membrane kind of the input output you find that uh, the threshold for firing it's supposed to be integration on the dendrites and soma to a threshold reach that that triggers a firing and that's a one or a zero and that lends itself to computation so it's all dependent on input versus output which is algorithmic and Turing however they found that there's a variability in the threshold firing threshold on a b2b basis on a firing to firing basis. So there was something other than the membrane or even a field coming in from the outside because that would affect the membrane. Well, let, me, let me just interject just for clarification for my audience you know, because uh, if I'm a little bit unclear, it, I'm sure that they might also be. So when you say that the threshold changes, it would be as if you have still zeros and ones, but the threshold to trigger in a you know transistor-based computer, it'd be as if their, that threshold would not be zero and five volts, it would be some some intermediate value that itself would change over time? Yes, it changes on a firing to firing basis. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was, uh, they kind of, everybody kind of glossed over that. Well, it's it's artifact, it's noise, it's this, it's that, but I, it isn't. That is actually a perfect place for consciousness to come in because if we're algorithmic, if we're totally computational, then there's no possibility of free will, there's no creativity, there's no imagination. It's all, we're all basically a computer. Not many, a, many people believe that we have no free will. You know, Sam Harris, Sabina Hassenfelder, many people believe in super determinism. And so I know that. that's not a problem for that. them. But I know that. But if you want to- I, I actually, I don't believe that we don't have free will and I've never met somebody, I don't know, have you, you might've, have you ever met someone who acts in accordance with the perspective that they have no free will? In other words, Sam Harris, I don't think that he goes around thinking, I I have no free will, so therefore I'm going to act in accordance with that fact. In other words, he sees it as a fact. Have you ever encountered a patient perhaps that uh, maybe in psychological settings that- A zombie-like person? Well, believe that like, you know, if they did something wrong, they cheat on their wife, that it's because of the Big Bang. You know, is there there something like that? Well, there could be, but I think there's there's a bigger problem with free will which is that if you say something and I say something, and uh, if we someone looks in my brain at the activity recording or, or processing what you said, I will have already responded to you. Yes. Or uh, a baseball player actually swings the bat, it doesn't really have enough time to know where the, the ball is. Going back to the experiments of Benjamin Libet in 1979, uh, where he had patients awake in surgery with their brains exposed and could do physiological tests, he found that the brain refers information backward in time. And uh, Roger wrote about this in his book, The Emperor's New Mind. And I, I then looked up Libet and studied him intensely. And basically, Roger uh, argues that every collapse sends quantum information both forward and backward in time and Aronov says the same thing and others do too so uh, backward time up is allowable in quantum physics up up to a point 
you do have the grandfather you know, causal paradox problem, but you can get around that or you can avoid it by just uh, not uh, affecting anything that hasn't collapsed yet. So this backward in time effect actually enables you enables us to act in, in, in real time. So even though the activity processing, what you said, hasn't happened yet, it's going backward in time so I can answer you consciously. But but the, the phase space or the parameter space isn't infinite. In other words, if the baseball pitcher you know, is throwing a pitch, it's not going to you know emerge from, from the dugout. It's going to emerge from his hand. There's a parameter space right, that right, narrows down the right. batter's ability right. to actually judge. And there is, you know, it's not, it's not that it's a-causal. It's they're basing their swing pattern on the actual you know probability that they They've witnessed over thousands of pitches in the case of a well major that's League that's the, uh, the the mainstream explanation yeah. and that may be true but mm-hmm. a guy named Robert Adair uh, wrote a book called the science of the swing about mm-hmm. this and and it w- argued against that same thing with cricket and tennis and mm-hmm. so forth and even rapid-fire conversation and there's a, a lot of experimental evidence for it also unfortunately if it's in the parapsychology literature it gets written off as parapsychology right. but there's a lot of precognition there's some mm-hmm. very uh, mainstream uh, studies showing uh, effects from the near future right but getting back to the actual orc or theory yeah. so when we when we talk about can you sum that up in a, in a way that you know a lay person can understand it because i've had trouble i know other physicists have trouble understanding it and i know you're not a physicist but you've been intimately involved you're the one person that roger responded to from the emperor's new mind back which was the first book i ever right. read as a science you know hungry kid but i want to ask you so the orchestrated, let's break it down. What does ORC, O-R stand for? And then what do each one of those terms mean in layperson's terms, please? Okay, well, OR is Roger's uh, theory for collapse of the wave function right. due to general relativity or quantum gravity, however you want to describe it. I'll come to that in a second. ORC is really what's happening in the microtubules. So let me put this in a temporal perspective. When mm-hmm. I was in medical school, I was interested in the brain-mind problem, consciousness, but neurology, neurosurgery, psychiatry didn't really uh, grab me as a, as a specialty to spend my life doing. I did a research elective in a cancer lab and was studying mitosis, how cells divide, mm-hmm. how these uh, structures, microtubules, mitotic spindles, would grab the chromosomes and they were all tangled up and mixed up and grab them in perfect uh, pairs and separate them to form the daughter cells. So they had to know where to go, what to do. They needed to have some kind of intelligence or possibly consciousness. Everybody else in the lab got fascinated by the chromosomes. And this was the dawn of the genetic revolution. And they probably made billions in genetic engineering and so forth. I got really fascinated with how these structures, these microtubules, knew where to go and what to do. I was interested in consciousness. At that same time, the early 70s, it was discovered that the microtubules were in all cells, not just mitotic spindles, including neurons. They were chock full, neurons were chock full of them. Prior to that, the fixative agent had, for electron microscopy had been dissolving them. And the uh, X-ray diffraction crystallography of microtubule came out from Amos and Klug in, in the UK. And it was a it was a uh, like a crystalline lattice of individual proteins in a helical geometry w- with Fibonacci geometry, which I thought was really interesting. And they were in neurons. and. Uh, and they look like computers. I was also learning about computers for the first time, about Boolean switching matrices. And I looked at the structure of microtubule and a, and a Boolean switching matrix. I said, you know, they look like computers. Maybe they're processing information as little computers. And that's how they know where to go and what to do and, and organize stuff inside the cells. And so I developed uh, some theories and models and worked with physicists at Los Alamos, uh, Steen Rasmussen, Jack Tuszynski, uh, Stephen Smith, and, and others modeling microtubules as automata, like cellular automata, where each protein subunit could be a one or a zero interacting with its neighbors. And we showed that we could get propagating patterns and information, and they could be pretty good computers, especially if you hook them up side by side in opposite directions as we have inside neurons. 
inside dendrites. So have people built? Uh, is this a sign? Have they built? You know, uh, you know, squishy wet computers using microtubules, and not you know, maybe not human subjects, but have they mouse got, models? Well, or? Otterbein has developed uh, what he calls brain jelly, which is an organic polymer that self-organizes in a helical fashion, which is based on microtubules that he sa says is a quantum computer. It's an organic quantum computer at room temperature, and that's he just got big time funding in India to develop that, mm. but. I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, so. so I was going around the 70s and 80s uh, to neural net and AI meetings and where, you know, Kurzweil's talking about the singularity. We get to 10 to the 16th uh, operations per second. They were looking at the, at the brain as 10 to the, 10 to the 11th neurons, 1,000 synapses at about 100 hertz gives you 10 to the 16th operations per second. So Kurzweil, actually this came from Hans Moravec in the, in the, in the 80s. I read his book, uh, Mind Children, I think. Mm. And then Kurzweil picked it up and said, well, when we get to that's the brain capacity, 10 to the 16th operations per second. When we get there, we'll have consciousness in a computer. Because so he's coming on the podcast next early next year, so look forward to okay. sharing your ideas with him. Okay, and uh, and I had calculated that uh, microtubules, there were about a billion tubulins switching in say 10 megahertz, gave you 10 to the 16th operations per neuron. Hmm. So I was I was going on being a real pain in the butt to them, saying no, there's way way more information going on. And if you multiply the 10 to the 16th per neuron times the 10 to the 11th neurons, you get 10 to the 27th operations per second. So I was moving their goalpost, if they wanted to believe me, way, way downstream. So they didn't want to believe me. They didn't like that because they were saying, give us a few more billion and we'll have a conscious computer. And I was saying, no, 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 it's like 30, 40, 50 years in the future, you know? So they said, get out of here, kid, you bother me, you know? And so uh, anyway, one day somebody said, okay, wise guy, let's say you're right. How would that explain consciousness? And it was the hard problem thrown in my face. This is five years before Dave uh, Chalmers discussed the hard problem. Other mm -hmm. people, including John Searle, had described it in other ways. I had to realize, I had to admit that this guy was right. I didn't have a mechanism for consciousness. You know, feelings, love, joy, the color pink, the blue sky, whatever, taste, smell of coffee. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. it was, these were qualia. And uh, fortunately, that person had recommended I read Roger's book, uh, The Emperor's New Mind, which I did. The first part of the book was arguing against the idea that consciousness is a computation through Gödel's theorem. That a math mathematical theorem can't prove itself. You have to have somebody outside, a conscious mathematician. And he said, therefore, for understanding, you have to be outside the computational system, mm -hmm. the classical computation, the Turing, Turing uh, machine uh, idea, something outside that. And for that, you had to leave classical physics. You had to go to quantum physics. And for that, you had to arrive at the single most mysterious issue in quantum physics, which is the measurement problem, the collapse of the wave function. And as you know, in quantum physics at small scales, and maybe large scales, but at least at small scales, things can be in multiple states or locations at the same time. But when measured or observed, they seem to collapse to one or the other. Now, some people say that doesn't happen in each possibility, branches off and forms its own universe or decoherence does it. Some people say the consciousness causes collapse. None of those are really satisfactory. And in this book, The Emperor's New Mind, Roger came up with his own new idea that there was a self-collapse. And to explain that, he brought in general relativity, which is a neat trick in and of itself because quantum physics and general relativity generally don't jive. But he likened the position of a particle or a particle to tiny curvatures in space-time. Now, Einstein had done it for big things like the sun bending light behind the stars so that Eddington could see the, the stars behind the sun and that proved uh, space-time curvature. Roger did it for tiny things. So a tiny particle would have a tiny curvature in space-time 
And if it was in superposition of being here and here, it would have two curvatures. It would be a separation in underlying space-time geometry. And he used these simple two-dimensional space-time sheets to illustrate. And you can imagine that if the curvature separated indefinitely, you'd have multiple worlds. But he's, and it, you can imagine that if somebody looked at it and caused collapse, that it would go to one or the other without explaining what the consciousness was out here. But he said the separations were unstable and after a time T would collapse to one or the other. And when that happened, it would give a moment of proto-conscious experience, a qualia. And this was the only um, mechanism ever proposed that I know of and still to this day for generation of qualia of, of conscious but experience. What, the wave function of what? Because there's there's an infinite number of systems in the that you could describe, right? Is it every electron collapses their wave function? What, what wave function are we talking about? The, the well, brain, that's the, yeah, does That's it? the beauty of it. He used space-time curvature, so it doesn't matter because any superposition of anything would be a separation in, in, in space-time geometry. In principle, it would work for any superposition. Now, to work in the brain is another question, but it would mean, and it still means, that there are superpositions separating and collapsing in the table, in the air, everywhere, ubiquitously throughout the universe. And uh, these collapses would be random, disconnected, lack memory, lack meaning, Decoherent. lack context, mm -hmm. and would be what uh, he calls, uh, and I call now, proto-conscious. And this may seem bizarre that these proto-conscious events are happening everywhere, but if you're a panpsychist, and many neuroscientists have resorted to panpsychism right, because yeah. neuroscience doesn't work mm -hmm. for consciousness, then you have the issue that everything is conscious, including this fake brain, including the table. So it's the same thing. But then you have the problem, how do you combine them into the t kind of unified consciousness we have? And you can't do that for panpsychism, but for quantum you can because of entanglement. Mm -hmm. And this relies on, yeah, gravitational effects, which are far, you know, literally 40 orders of magnitude smaller than, you know, special relativistic effects or electromagnetic effects. How do they evade the decoherence time scales that, you know, even in a simplistic many worlds interpretation happening, you know, 10 to the 30th times per second? And how do they persist long enough for us to have that 100 hertz, which is one, you know, hundredth of a second perception of qualia or whatever else? Right. Well, everybody says the brain's too warm, wet, and noisy for delicate quantum effects because you want to build a quantum computer, go to the laboratory and do it at absolute Right. Zero. We have uh, dilution refrigerators that will take you down to point right. zero zero one Kelvin, right? Right. Yet for that purpose. Uh, and the brain is mostly water. However, the brain is not homogeneous. The brain is not just one big slab mm -hmm. with the same amount of water everywhere. The brain is highly heterogeneous and anesthesiologists, as, and I am one, and pharmacologists know that if you give a molecule to an organism, if we give a drug to a patient, it will go in that, in that patient to where it dissolves, to where it's soluble. And drugs have different solubility. So most drugs are polar, they're, they're soluble in water and blood, and they go to charged receptors on membrane re uh, surfaces. But anesthetics, which are selective for erasing consciousness and have very, very little, very little other effects on the brain, they uh, they go to nonpolar areas, uh, fat-like regions, lipid-like regions. They're basically oil, kind of like the benzene ring. And oil and water don't mix. So in proteins, all all the the aromatic rings of amino acids, which are the basis for organic chemistry and a, and a key player in in quantum biology, these organic rings coalesce inside proteins. And so we have these regions of nonpolar, water-free, because water, oil and water don't mix and they exclude water, that support quantum optical effects. And it's these quantum optical effects, which then couple to the nucleus to, to have enough superposition, movement and superposition to reach threshold that gives you quantum effects in, uh, 
Yeah, room temperature and a wet system. Yes, it's an point. adiabatic system. You have a quantum system, uh, a decoherence-free subsystem inside a polar uh, shield, more or less. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the microtubules themselves, because you're an expert in this field. So microtubules exist in all cells. Correct. Right. Is there anything different about their qualities inside of the brain? Yes. For one thing, they're more uh, more variable genetically. There are 22 iso isozymes, isoforms of, of tubulin in, in the brain and only 11 in most other tissues. And then you can have uh, post-translational modifications, perfect for memory, memory encoding. So you can have uh, roughly uh, 30 different types of tubulin and there's a billion per neuron in these lattices. And in the dendrites and soma, the microtubules are, they're kind of permanently, they're capped on both ends. So you, they don't add at one end and, and lose at the other. They don't have what's called dynamic instability where they shatter and repolymerize. They don't have to disassemble and get involved in mitosis, cell division, which they do in all other cells because neurons don't divide. Once they're formed, they don't divide, which means that the microtubules can stay in their particular lattice configuration. And each one of those tubulins can be in one of 30. So it's kind of a mosaic. And so that's a perfect uh, mechanism for memory, which is, and I think microtubules store memory. It can't be synapses because the synaptic proteins only last hours to days and, and memories last lifetimes. And the synapses are upregulated and downregulated by microtubules. And we've shown how memory can be encoded from synaptic events into the microtubules. And the dendritic uh, microtubules are, are capped, so they're stable over the lifetime, presumably the lifetime of individuals, and uh, they don't have to uh, disassemble from mitosis. And in dendrites and soma, they're in this very strange mixed polarity network. So microtubules have a plus end and a minus end. In all cells, they're unipolar with a beta plus in, minus, alpha minus out, like spokes of a wheel. And in an axon, they're also in unipolar in a, a parallel bundle. In dendrites and soma, they're broken, interrupted, and they're part of the cytoskeleton. So if they're skeletal, you wouldn't want to break your femur in, in half and have one go. It doesn't make any sense. There must be something else. So you have one going one way, one the other, and they're in these mixed polarity networks, mm -hmm. which allow for recursive processing and also interference beats. So if they're oscillating at, say, megahertz, and they're in slightly different energies because they're going to be in the external membrane is going to affect them slightly differently, they're going to interfere and give slower beats. And that's how you get from, say, megahertz to kilohertz to hertz to EEG. In fact, we think EEG is generated by uh, microtubule oscillation interference. Can you explain to me how anesthesia, the conventional model for how anesthesia actually works? Most people would say anesthesia acts on membrane proteins, receptors, mm -hmm. GABA receptors, acetylcholine receptors, serotonin, glycine, maybe a few others on the dendritic side. However, not all anesthetics, there's this unitary feature of anesthesia. If you rank them all in potency, that potency correlates perfectly with their solubility in olive oil, of all things. The aromatic nonpolar region of like aromatic ranks like tryptophan, phenylalanine, so that holds over many, many orders of magnitude. And so they all should act the same way. But not all anesthetics bind to all receptors. They don't all bind to GABA receptors. And there's never been any study showing a correlation between uh, anesthetic action on uh, membrane receptors and potency. The world leader in anesthetic mechanism uh, research, a guy at UCSF, uh, who's passed away now, Ted Eager. And when I was when I was uh, in residency, he was the guy. I mean, and uh, at UCSF, and the expert in anesthetic mechanism and so forth. He and his team worked to find which receptor or receptors mediate anesthetic action. 
And after 20 years, he gave up. In 2008, he wrote this paper that said that uh, we need a new paradigm. This is not, it's not membrane receptors. For One goes up, one goes down, there's no unitary action. And uh, I told him at the time, I said, you should look at microtubules, but uh, he didn't want to do that. But hmm. uh, since then, Rod Eckenhoff's group at University of Pennsylvania has been doing systematic research into anesthetic mechanism and found, for example, 70 different proteins in a, in a cell and a neuron that bind anesthetics and about half in the membrane, half in the cytoplasm, cytoplasm including tubulin. So tubulin does bind uh, uh, anesthetics and uh, genomic and proteomic uh, studies show that the uh, gene expression changed the most for tubulin, suggesting that's the functional effect. And they also did optogenetics where they had a fluorescent anesthetic that only, only acted as an anesthetic when you hit it with UV light and they gave it to these tadpoles and uh, they swam around and fortunately tadpoles have transparent heads so they can then illuminate with, with ultraviolet light. And when they did that, they all went belly up. Mm -hmm. The anesthetic became active and they donated their little brains to science and they found that the uh, anesthetic was bound to tubular, microtubules. And also people on the, the drug Taxol, which uh, stabilizes uh, microtubules, it's an anti-cancer drug, so they, they can't uh, disassemble for mitosis, uh, require more anesthesia. That also came out of uh, Eckenhoff's lab. Mm -hmm. So there's circumstantial evidence. I think there's far more for microtubules than anything else. Despite that, the party line is still membrane receptors. And how does it relate to, say, a drug, you know, a uh, you know, barbiturate or some sort of a depressant or something like that? How, how does anesthesia, which you, you I don't know, phenobarbital, what do you, what's the most common one that... Sevoflurane, uh, propofol. Propofol. So how does that relate to, say, uh, you know, a, a, a classic, you know, schedule one narcotic. Is, are they related at all? Well, narcotics act at opiate receptors primarily. Mm -hmm. uh, however, if you give enough fentanyl, for example, you get a general anesthetic. Mm -hmm. But uh, they're really, uh, they're really spe supposedly specific for opiate receptors. Propofol and the anesthetics follow the Meyer-Overton correlation, and therefore, they should have a common, uh, a common mode of action. Now, propofol does bind to GABA receptors, and everybody says, well, they, they act on GABA receptors, but they also get inside the cell. In fact, it was recently shown that, that uh, psychedelics also act inside the cell, that there are 5-HT2A receptors inside the neuron in the microtubule-associated proteins. So it, it's, it's likely that psychedelics act inside neurons uh, directly on, more directly on microtubules, mm -hmm. as do anesthetics. Interesting. Are there some uh, quantum physics or say related to things like spintronics or the Ising model, things like that? What's, what's sort of the work in the physical, quote unquote, hard sciences that's been most you know provocative to you in an interesting way? I actually worked with Ising models and, and uh, microtubules as Ising models or cellular automata, molecular automata, where each tubulin was a, uh, uh, could be a single, single state. But I think that's that's too simplistic. And I think probably the most significant work has been done by my friend Anurban Bandyapadyay, who works at the National Institute of Material Sciences in Scuba, Japan, who started working on microtubules in around 2009 after reading some of our papers. He started out studying, he's a nanotechnologist to begin with, and he started out studying individual microtubules with four electrodes, two to record and two to stimulate. And if you stimulate a microtubule, let's say with a, a DC uh, current, a DC voltage or, or a voltage, it's a good insulator. However, if you put a current on and alternating different frequencies and sweep the frequencies, you'll find certain frequency bands where the microtubule becomes highly conductive, almost superconductive. He calls it ballistic conductive. Mm -hmm. And this happens every three orders of magnitude in hertz, kilohertz, megahertz, gigahertz, and terahertz. 
in each level, the, the conductance band is a, it's what he calls a triplet of triplets. There's three peaks and each peak has three peaks. And this triplet of triplet repeats in kilohertz, megahertz, gigahertz, and terahertz. So it's kind of like uh, a resonant orchestra or something in one, you know, microtubes themselves are these uh, incredible quantum vibrational devices, basically based on KT. You don't have to pump them, you don't have to give them energy. It's just they take ambient energy and, and vibrate in these frequencies. So he discovered that and I'm um, really itching to see uh, anesthetic effects. And we're discussing doing uh, building a, a chamber where we can have airtight control and, and study quantum optical effects, microtubules with effects of anesthesia. So uh, uh, he did that and then uh, in a couple of years ago, he studied a neural network and with these uh, dielectric resonance probes inside the neurons in the network and found gigahertz, he can measure gigahertz and megahertz oscillations in the dendrites and soma that controlled the firing more so than the membrane potential. So here was a perfect example of the microtubules overriding membrane effects, which is exactly what you want for consciousness to overcome automatic behavior. So you're driving down the road and you're daydreaming or mind wandering, and then somebody swears in front of you, your consciousness takes over. And uh, it's not coming from outside because uh, you wouldn't, you would see it in the membrane potential. So it must be coming from inside or it's likely to be coming from inside. And this would explain exactly, in fact, he's demonstrated that. And then more recently, he's been able to detect megahertz and gigahertz from the scalp with a single electrode and now an array. And he calls this the DDG, the dodecagram, which is essentially ultra high frequency EEG, where you can measure um, at least megahertz and gigahertz from the scalp. And we did some uh, fooling around with that uh, while he was here. He brought a device and showed uh, triplet of triplets from my head and others. And we tried it on a dog and we got we got a megahertz peak. We tried it on a on an apple and did not see anything. And we tried it on a plant. And actually, at the, right where the stem and the root combined, we saw some megahertz activity. Plants could be conscious at a very low frequency. So, you know, I think we have, for example, 10 million orcoar moments per second. And uh, that interferes down to give EEG and cognition and so forth, whereas a, a plant might have a couple per minute. So it could be at the base level, you know, people argue as much about, you know, what is consciousness as they do about what is life, right? So it could be that, you know, only living things are conscious if, a, you know, not, I don't mean currently alive, but those that have capability to be alive. You have a, an apple, maybe it's cut off from, you know, actual, you know, um, cellular mitosis and so forth. But, you know, the panpsychic uh, notion should have a restriction on it, in my opinion. I, I don't support panpsychism myself, but uh, but it, but it's, it's an intriguing possibility that allows people to kind of get around some various conundrum. I want to ask you about two, two relevant things that have been really popular topics for me and very interesting for me to study lately. One has to do with artificial intelligence and natural stupidity, but the other one has to do with uh, brain organoids. So we had our good friend, uh, Professor Allison Motrian uh, early this year. Actually, he was our first in-studio guest, and he devised, you know, the, the detailed many great developments that are going on with brain organoids and so forth. Like, what are the kind of base level primitives that you could distill, you know, a brain to, consciousness to? Is it like an organoid? I mean, what would be the ideal, you know, control and variable kind of setup for a classic decisive experiment in this field? Well, I've been discussing this actually, uh, and, and Allison and I wrote a paper on, on uh, trying to detect, look for consciousness in brain organoids. And uh, I thought it was a pretty good paper, actually. And the main feature was that he's, he sees uh, rhythmic dynamics at different frequencies, and they're phase coupled. 
kind of like the megahertz, gigahertz uh, activity at different scales, but it wasn't that much of a difference in, in frequency. One idea was whether they were coupled or not. And I, I would think that if they were, if the organ was conscious, there would be uncoupling of the phase because if, if you're just, everything's in phase, then you're on automatic pilot and you're, you're unconscious. Whereas uh, I think you want to, uh, you want to decouple and, and that's where consciousness could come in. So that's one of the things we put in that paper. Mm -hmm. And uh, my friend uh, Hartman Nevin at Google and his uh, friends at uh, UC Santa Barbara are trying to entangle an organoid with the quantum system. And uh, so that'll be interesting. I personally think that uh, it's organized already too complicated. They mm -hmm. should try to entangle microtubules. And in fact, Honorbond has shown entanglement between two microtubules. Interesting. So that is the primitive base level that could be the most useful sort of uh, building block Lego for studying consciousness in some sense. I think you need microtubules. And uh, I think you need these uh, coherent vibrations megahertz, gigahertz. And, uh, you know, with this uh, device, we were measuring megahertz. And I think at this point in time that megahertz from the brain is probably as good a candidate for neurocorrelative consciousness as there is, hmm. because we can measure it, you know, from our little studies, it was, it was reproducible. Animals have it, plants seem to have it, uh, inanimate objects do not have it. Mm -hmm. And we also tried stimulating with uh, transcranial ultrasound and uh, we found uh, on one side and measured from the other, we found uh, after a slight delay, an increase in activity. So, uh, and transcranial ultrasound is mechanical vibrations in megahertz, which uh, does cause mental effects. Uh, after a slight delay, you get a, a, a kind of a euphoric uh, mood enhancement and uh, a number of uh, people have been studying that. About the electromagnetic phenomena, the Havana syndrome, things yeah. like that. Are, are there pertinent aspects that we could learn about consciousness, either from the claimed or real evidence that's been yeah. presented for electromagnetic stimulation? I would bet that Havana syndrome is some kind of effect on microtubules. It could be microwave, gigahertz. We know microtubules resonate at gigahertz. It might be uh, radio waves, megahertz. But if you, uh, if you, over resonate something like the bridge, you know, that over, yeah, over, yeah. it's gonna, it's gonna shatter. And mm -hmm. I think that's exactly what happened. And mm -hmm. in fact, concussion, uh, concussion is in concussion, your microtubules get, get fractured and broken. And that's been well proven. And uh, so it's, it's a lot like a uh, post concussion syndrome. Interesting. Uh, last thing before we take uh, audience questions um, has to do with these, you know, human brain computational augmentation systems, things like Neuralink and so forth. I'd like to get your uh, impression of those. What, what are the prospects? We've, we've had uh, Noam Chomsky on a long time ago, uh, talked about his pessimism uh, that this is uh, not really pertinent to how consciousness is really organized or, or presented. Uh, what are your thoughts as, a, as a, you know, someone who's deeper in this field than Noam certainly is? If what, you're talking about uh, brain-computer interface with uh, EEG, yes. forget it. The EEG is way too crude. Is way uh, you know uh, anything's going to be washed out. You might have a better better chance with this megahertz, mm -hmm. and uh, you know which I think is going to convey a lot more uh, information, and also has the advantage of uh, this guy at the conference, Patrick Pilecki, pointed out that uh, that the a big problem with uh, a brain-computer interface with EEG is that blink artifact or facial movement screws it all up. Mm -hmm. And we showed in, with our uh, megahertz device that you can blink all you want and you can make faces and it doesn't change one bit. Mm. So it would be better for that uh, aspect. And also you get way more information. 
Absolutely. So we have a large number of questions from Twitter and from- uh, I didn't get to answer about AI. Oh yeah, Can please I just say one thing? Yeah, yeah, I was gonna, yeah. There's a guy, Brian Romilly. I've seen him on Twitter and he's been on James Altman. So he podcast. asked ChatGPT, what's the most likely way for you to become conscious? And ChatGPT said, the best way. No, I won't. I won't. <laughs> Chat Use GPT. your howl voice. Use your howl voice. Is the Arthur Open C. Clarkson. the pod bay door. <laughs> and ChatGPT said uh, the best way is through the Penrose Hamroff Orko R theory, wow. and went on with a pretty nice exposition of the of the theory. Really, uh, but let's uh, let's talk about AI generally, uh, not just uh, you know the the uh, chat bots and so forth. We have a Bry bot, by the way, which you can find on my website. You can interact with me and ask me your questions, uh, as Brian, the other Brian did. But um, uh, tell me, Stuart, what do you think? is uh, sort of the the promise, the pitfalls, the perils of this kind of singularity of AI that seems to be upon us or will be imminently so. I don't think AI is going to become conscious. They may try to convince us it's conscious, but uh, if it's just computation, I don't think so. You know, maybe somebody builds a quantum computer with objective reduction, possible. Mm -hmm. But just more complexity, more this, more that, it's, no, it's not going to be. It may, you know, it may fool some people, but I don't think it's be conscious. It could still be dangerous, mm -hmm. but not not because of it's conscious. I still think it's interesting to get your impression about this. What you know, consciousness. If we were to understand it, it would it would it would certainly involve things we can't really anticipate right now in terms of understanding who we are, what we are. But it's kind of like conscious uh, cosmology, another COS thing, which is that it's it's incredibly significant, but it may not be important. In, in other words, like it won't affect our daily lives and technology. Maybe consciousness would. And I want to get your impression about that. Uh, but on the other hand, it's clear anesthesiology. I mean, anesthesiology might be one of the most important inventions of all time, right? And so, you know, along with you know, dent I wrote I, I wrote a chapter in 2000, uh, this guy wrote a book, Greatest Inventions of the Past 2000 Years, mm -hmm. and I wrote the chapter on anesthesia. So we always have these, you know, revisionist histories where people mm -hmm. say, you know, if only I were alive in, you know, in the 1640s and, and uh, I would have just cleaned up, I would have had all the treasure and women. But if you broke your leg, what you'd are you be do? out of luck. You know, we live better now than not even just like 400 years ago. We live better than like the Queen of England lived in the 1950s or 40s. Uh, it's just it's just uh, uh, unbelievable. So in terms of benefit to humanity, as Alfred Nobel, you know, clearly wanted, and what would what would create sort of a, a, a bigger impact? Understanding consciousness, the base layer of, of reality as we perceive it, and there are as many different interpretations of quantum mechanics as there are interpretations of consciousness from you know, Donald Hoffman, you know, we've had them all on, uh, and uh, no one can tell me what it's like to be a bat uh, yet. But I want to ask you, which would have a bigger breakthrough? Advances in anesthesiology and brain-computer interfaces and being able to control the brain versus understanding what consciousness is? Well, it depends what it turns out to be. If we're right and consciousness is an intrinsic feature of the universe, connecting us through multiple layers down to the uh, fundamental space-time geometry, that would kind of define our place in the universe. And I think that would be important for not just practical reasons, medical reasons, but also spiritual reasons, philosophical reasons. We would be connected. Uh, it would kind of change our outlook. On the other hand, if it turns out, if it goes the other way and it's a emergent epiphenomenal process, then who cares? So we've now reached the point in the conversation where I'd like to ask some questions from the audience. So my friend, Dr. Leonard uh, Momeni, uh, who's a uh, great scholar and friend of the show, he asks you the following question. He asks, what are your thoughts on Compton making connections between Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and free will? 
the uncertainty principle is uh, the basis for the ORC OR uh, collapse, or Rogers OR collapse. Uh, it's uh, T equals H bar over E sub G. So the larger the superposition, the faster it will collapse. And it's it's an average, so there's still some uncertainty. It's called like a, a radioactive decay. And that's what give, gives you consciousness and action for free will. But as I mentioned before, generally, the brain activity is is too late. So without uh, backward time referral, you don't have the even the possibility for real-time conscious action. And consciousness is, would therefore be epiphenomenal and we have a false illusion, which most people think. Are the, the, the party line in neuroscience and philosophy, starting from Dan Dennett and uh, Dan Wegner's book, The Illusion of Free Will, is that uh, free will is an, is an illusion because the activity happens too late. And our non-conscious autopilot acts first, although they never explain where the brain activity is for the non-conscious autopilot, because that should have some activity too. Mm. And uh, and then we have this false illusion after the fact that we were in control, consciousness and illusion. And uh, the backward time effect rescues the possibility, rescues conscious free will. Brad Caldwell uh, on Twitter, and reminder, you can always ask questions of all my guests on Twitter, Dr. Brian Keating, YouTube, Dr. Brian Keating, Instagram, Dr. Brian. Brad Caldwell asked the following about the triple peak significance. Are there any noticeable changes in such patterns during different uh, conscious phases like sleep versus anesthetics versus conscious? Yeah, we, d we don't know yet. The first thing I want to do is anesthesia. Mm -hmm. I, I, I suspect that the, uh, the megahertz uh, triplets I hope will be more sensitive to anesthesia than EEG. If you if you look at EEG, gamma tends to go away and everything kind of slows down. Mm -hmm. So it, it will be interesting to see what happens to the megahertz and gigahertz with anesthesia and also perhaps with, with psychedelics. Mm -hmm. I bet they go up. I've got a lot of very brilliant people in my audience. The next one is SK Svelin K who asks ORC OR aside, which would theory would you put your money on as a second best guess? <laughs> I like uh, recurrent processing, uh, predictive coding, because it's more than just a wiring diagram. It's a process that can happen at multiple levels. In fact, recurrent processing happens, as I said, you have microtubules in opposite directions, so information can go here and then here. So we did a, a paper in 1990 with, with two microtubules in opposite directions showing learning between these two microtubules. So I think recurrent processing and predictive coding is a fundamental process, not just at the neural level, but all the way down, including microtubules. So that's my second favorite. Great. John Hussein Kennedy asks, are there any aromatic ring structures that are non-carbon that could share the quantum properties of benzene, such as six silicon ring hexacilla benzene? It would have to have pi resonance and the, the indole ring in tryptophan and a lot of the psychedelic and serotonin, a lot of the psychedelics has a nitrogen in the, in the five ring. And so it doesn't have to be all carbon, but it, it has to allow a pi resonance uh, orbital. Robbie is asking specifically, I'm very interested in researching the properties of microtubules, especially as waveguides, ordered water. Very interesting question. The, the water inside, so water, water on any ordered surface is, is gonna be ordered. In other words, it's not gonna be just random water. It's gonna align with the charges. And the microtubules have a lot of charges uh, and on the outside and also inside. And on the inside, the water channel, Honorbaum was talking about this yesterday, the, the water channel is, uh, is in, was he saying terahertz? It's oscillating coherently in terahertz. And in fact, uh, before I started working with Roger in the 90s, I wrote a paper with uh, 
quantum physicists from Japan, Ari Jibu and Kunio Yasui, and Carl Priebman was on that, and Scott Hagen, about uh, super radiance in the water channel inside microtubules. I thought originally that microtubules might be ra- waveguides for electromagnetics, but it's, it's kind of high energy because the wavelength would be small. Mm-hmm. However, the centrioles or cilia, which are uh, nine triplets of, of microtubules, is about 150 uh, nanometers in diameter, and that's a perfect optical waveguide. And in fact, uh, Albrecht Bueller has shown that uh, centrioles, which are essentially cilia, two cilia, uh, detect photons and capture them. And there's these cilia in every one of our rod and cone cells and uh, photons pass through them to get to the uh, rhodopsin in the back. And I was talking to somebody at the conference who agreed with me that it's likely that uh, these cilia might be uh, extracting quantum information and sending them through the mouth and there's Muller cells into the brain other than the optic nerve. So we may be detecting more than quite literally meets the eye quantum optically. Hmm. Very good. Okay, so next question uh, comes from uh, Atai Barkay who asks your thoughts on Matthew Fisher Posner molecule proposal where quantum entanglement occurs in the brain, but not via microtubules. Well, first of all, there's no Posner clusters in the brain. As far as I can tell, Posner clusters are calcium phosphate crystals that might happen in bone formation, but not anything cognitive, not anything information. So they're not, I don't see how they'd be very useful to store information. Mm -hmm. If you want a lattice, the microtubules are perfect. The other problem with that is that lithium, the isotopes of lithium differ in their mass uh, significantly. And so you're not sure if the difference in isotope is due to the the spin or the mass. Now there is a very interesting uh, isotope effect in consciousness, which is xenon. Xenon is an anesthetic, Mm -hmm. it's a single atom inert Uh, An inert atom, Mm -hmm. and it's complete outer shell, so it's nonpolar, and it's a perfectly good anesthetic and follows Meyer-Overton. Anyway, it can have different isozymes, and a group in China uh, studied the potency of the different isozymes, and they found the one isozyme that had a spin one-half was uh, significantly less potent Hmm. than the other, and they postulated that the spin one-half actually promoted consciousness, that actually accelerated consciousness, and therefore the xenon was antagonizing its own anesthetic effect. Hmm. And I reviewed that paper for anesthesiology, and they asked me to write a, uh, an editorial, which I did. And so I, I elucidated exactly how the spin one half might interact with the other quantum stuff going on in the brain. Wow. Okay, Tom Anderson is a frequent uh, fan of the podcast, uh, asked the following question. Is there evidence for consciousness extending outside of the brain, say, in the entirety of the nervous system? Well, as I said, there's proto-consciousness everywhere, but I think uh, he might be referring to uh, <laughs> out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences or even afterlife. And uh, I'm, a- I'm asked that question quite often. And uh, in my, you know, if consciousness is happening in space-time geometry, it's conceivable that it could, uh, when, the, when the blood stops flowing and the, and the oxygen stops being delivered, that the quantum information might dissipate to the universe at large, but remain entangled as something like a quantum soul. Now, I don't suggest any evidence for that. I won't disbelieve it. I, I think it may be true, but I'm not claiming that. I'm just claiming that it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. And that anybody who says that it's absolutely impossible, it's unscientific, until they show exactly what consciousness is, that's they can't they can't make that claim. If consciousness is non-local, and a quantum effect uh, connected to the fundamental space-time geometry, then things like out-of-body, near-death, and uh, afterlife are not impossible. No, 
Very good. And I mean, there's so much, you know, just wide open, you know, blue sky stuff that we could talk about. I mean, I'm thinking as you're talking, you know, there's a whole subset. There's a gentleman named Mo Gadot who I'd like to get on the podcast. He worked at Google X and tragically lost his son very early in his uh, son's life. And he dedicated his life to making the world happier place. And he's got this mission called One Billion Happy. So, you know, Mo, if you're out there, I'd love to have you on. But one of the things he talks about is, you know, the improbability of things that we take as mundane, even consciousness and i was thinking you know what if uh if if any of these models are true it could be that consciousness lasts i mean certainly microtubules are dividing a second after a person dies right or whatever that means brain dead versus heart dead we could discuss that there's still processes happening if it's happening in a plant that's attached to the ground you know by the time causality takes it takes quite a bit of time for the message to get to the toenail that you've stopped uh, being alive right so could you extend this and give hope to people who have lost you that's where some of the danger lies though right because people project anything they want onto these i mean some of the questions i didn't ask are really out there you know and it's curious to me how you navigate this realm you know scientific approach and using it as a discipline that's falsifiable potentially in the paparian sense uh that's you know uh the bio neurobiological obviously but then you mentioned parapsychology and the spoon bending and stuff consciousness I didn't spoon no you didn't mention it no you would never do that but but you did well, you, you did mention parapsychology so question is you know how do you how does a serious scientist you know kind of navigate these very fraught shoals of you know kind of non-pseudoscientists where you know quantum healing can cure cancer or whatever versus doing the rigorous hardcore science that you're known for how do you well navigate? you're putting a few words in my mouth but but i did uh, i i do believe that it's possible afterlife is possible i don't advocate that it's true i don't mm -hmm. know but until we know what consciousness is we can't say that it doesn't exist and sure. uh if it's a non-local quantum effect then then it's possible but the reason i can even talk about that is that i don't depend on grants you know <laughs> yeah. pleasing anybody who has their own preconceived notions. I know I've run afoul of AI people. I've run afoul of a lot of uh, funding uh, agencies mm -hmm. who I think have ulterior motives and, and and their own agendas, whether they admit it or not. But I, you know, I've always made my living as an anesthesiologist, mm -hmm. and uh, I, and I, this has been my, I won't say my hobby, but my passion and uh, my research and uh, figuring out anesthesia, figuring out consciousness. And so I've been able to follow my nose and say what I th I think, whether it's whether it's going to cut off funding or not because mm -hmm. I don't really depend on funding. No. So and then and Roger's the same way. I mean he just says what he, you know, yeah. logically thinks. Yeah. No, and uh, you guys are courageous. And last time I asked you when you were on the podcast, I asked you uh for the advice to your former self, which is my <laughs> way of of bringing back to the podcast the name originally given to us by uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who said the following. He said that uh, the only way to know the limits of the possible is to go beyond them into the impossible. So ITI. And I asked you that in the form of advice to your former self. What would you give your advice to your former self as a 20-year-old man to uh, give yourself the courage to do what you've done, have this courageous career? So you answer that question. Now I'm going to ask you another question. Uh, that's another quip of the great Sir Arthur C. Clarke. And he said that um, when an elder Elderly, not calling you elderly. I'm elderly. You're older than it's me. Fine. You're retired. You're emeritus. But when an elderly but distinguished, you are distinguished scientist says something is possible, he or she is very likely to be right. But when he or she says something is impossible, they are very likely to be wrong. I'm going to ask you, uh, Stuart Fresser Hammeroff, what have you changed your mind about? What have you been wrong about? Say in the modern you know, incarnation of your career, not before you met Sir Roger. And in this field of consciousness research studies, what have you been wrong about, if anything? 
I don't know. Can I get back to you? <laughs> I don't want to sound arrogant, but I but you know the the major things like microtubules mm-hmm. and quantum and people you know particularly lately of trying to say well you know you got a great model of quantum coherence in microtubules you don't need objective reduction you know quantum gravity even you kind of sneered at it and the energy is so low. Roger had a good explanation for that and. Uh, I just think that it, it's it's logical. It makes sense to me. The numbers seem to work, and uh, it's the only uh, proposal for for qualia for consciousness ever ever put forth. So, I think I was right latching on to microtubules as the key to consciousness, and I think I was right in agreeing with Roger, and I think he was right in agreeing with me. Very nice, Wall Stewart Hammeroff, Professor Hammeroff, University of Arizona, a zony, self-declared zony. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming back on the Into the Impossible podcast for your second appearance. I hope that you'll come back again for a third, fourth, fifth in the future whenever you come to uh, Southern California. You're always welcome, and we always uh, learn so much from you and broaden our horizons uh, and uh, and take us on a tour of the inner cosmos, the cosmos between our ears as we study this. I like this. the inner cosmos. Yeah, the inner cosmos. I you may use feel that. free to use it. You use uh, astro consciousness, right? So Yes. Uh, <laughs> very good. Well, thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you, Brian. <laughs>